and welcome to episode number 42 of the Dry Heat Sports Podcast. My name is Matt Brown, joined as always by my bud in the Bay Area, Joe Fortenball, also producer Robert here in Las Vegas. Joe, you talked about how the numbers might kind of go down in quality here, but number 42, we have Ronnie Lott, Mariano Rivera, and Jackie Robinson. So this is a pretty, number 42, coming in pretty strong here. Probably the most important baseball player of all time the best closer of all time and some would argue it, but it could be the best safety of all time at his position. So to just rip off three names for a number. Wow. Yeah. To be honest. Wow. I mean, I, okay. So I took a couple shots at the forties, not too long ago. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly starting to want to backtrack on it, at least for number 42 here. Yeah. I mean, if you are too young, if you're listening to this and you're too young to know who Ronnie Lott is, uh, Ronnie Lott was a guy, Joe already said, you know, perhaps one of the, if not the greatest safeties of all time, but that's not even something that you might be really into. What you might be really into is this dude was okay with lopping off fingers because they just kept breaking all the time. And so instead of having fingers, he just decided to lop them off, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like the tip of a pinky. I don't know if it was a <laughs> Super Bowl or a playoff game, but he just had that thing removed so he could continue playing. And now you see certain situations where in baseball, I'll never forget Marty Cordova, an outfielder, missed a game because he fell asleep in a tanning bed. And it's like, bro, your entire job is to get a suntan out there in the outfield. How are you going to miss a game for falling asleep in a tanning bed? But so be it. So and I'm not, a, I'm not a Yankees guy, but, uh, you know, it's hard not to marvel at what Mariano Rivera was able to pull off. I mean, here's the thing, too, Joe, for me is this guy got away. Well, I say got away. I mean, he didn't get away with anything, but he was able to do this basically throwing one pitch. He threw a cutter, and that was it. And this guy threw a cutter every single time you stepped into the batter's box. It didn't matter if you were right-handed or if you were left-handed. It had didn't. It, he would just move it to a different place what, depending on what handed you were and was able to have the greatest career any closer has ever had throwing one friggin' pitch. And the duration. Look at yeah. the duration of how long he did it. He wasn't Eric Gagne who had that one awesome season and then everyone will point to PED use. He wasn't Zach Britton who had that great year and then the next year, you know, kind of got banged up. Wasn't the same thing in Baltimore. He wasn't Brian Wilson or, um, oh my God, Brad Lidge. Some of these guys who have had some good seasons but haven't been able to maintain. He kind of locked it down for almost two decades. Yeah, it's, it's and it's just like, huh, incredible. two decades. Yeah. It's just it's just incredible. And and if you don't know who Jackie Robinson is and his contributions, then you can just basically quit listening to the podcast. You can yeah, <laughs> you can just you can just stop. We don't need to explain. We cannot to you. help you. Yeah, like we don't need to explain to you anything about Jackie Robinson, hopefully. Um, all right. So we have a lot to talk about in this episode, even though there were only four games this weekend. The four games provide us with so much to talk about here, Joe. I mean an incredible amount of fodder, incredible amount of what could be backlash and everything that could go down spur, uh, coming off of these games and everything. But let's just start off with the first game of the weekend. We'll take a look here at the Falcons heading over to uh, Philadelphia, taking on the Eagles. Uh, you and I, we, did, we do these podcasts early in the week, and when we were doing this podcast, it looked as though the weather was going to be completely fine in Philadelphia. And what happened was, is the weather moved in a day early. It was supposed to be about 50 degrees and sunny and everything be perfectly fine. The weather got there a day early. It actually went from, there were people over there who were saying that it was like 57 degrees at their house the, the day before the game and then had plummeted to below 
uh, freezing at the time of the game and everything like that. And Joe, I think that had a, a big, big role in everything that goes on. Uh, 15 to 10 was the final in favor of the Eagles. And, you know, let's start with a betting perspective here. This is one of those things that we talk about, like monitoring throughout the week, the little things that can really give you an edge here. When I saw that this weather was rolling into town and I saw that how this was going to go and, you know, listen, you know, traditionally dome teams going outside, playing in sub freezing temperatures uh, tend to fare a little worse. And then listen, the Falcons uh, defense had been stepping it up a little bit better recently. The Eagles defense has been pretty good all year long. This was an excellent under opportunity, which I was able to go in and pound. And I think that, you know, I don't think we can stress enough how paying attention literally right up until kickoff can really, really put money in your pocket. There are two betting lessons to take away from that game. One is exactly what you laid out. Two is the idea that you do not want to get too caught up in recency bias. What you just witnessed. So many people love the Falcons coming into this game. What was it you saw from the Falcons over the course of the season that made you think that Dome team should have been a three-point favorite in Philadelphia outdoors in the divisional round of the playoffs against the rested football team? I'm not saying Atlanta didn't have a chance or that it shouldn't have been a pick but you're going to be a three-point favorite in that spot. That right there was a bad number, or it was a good number, and betting into it on the Falcon side was a mistake. Yeah, Philadelphia looked a little bit lousy down the stretch, but that Dallas game meant nothing that they lost 6-0. The weather was horrific in the Oakland Raider game where both teams played piss poor. But Nick Foles has starting experience. He had experience in the playoffs at least one game, and this was a situation where Philly came and rested, they had a game plan, and they took advantage of the opportunity. It wasn't so much the Rams hammering, or excuse me, the Falcons hammering the Rams last week. It was that the Rams didn't show up on the big stage, and the Falcons, as an experienced, savvy team, took advantage of it. But that was a questionable number when it came out, and anyone who sided with Philadelphia uh, was rewarded as a result of that. So, yeah, those would be the two things. you got to monitor the weather all week long when it gets to this time and of that year. Wind, and that wind in Philly was horrible. Yeah. You saw that on those first couple of deep passes. And, and, you know, whenever you see those winds and you see the cold and things like that, those are things that you need to react on and you need to react quick because there are other people out there who are paying attention. That being said, I don't know if I was on the, you know, I, I obviously wasn't a, a, an Eagles backer in this game, and I don't know if you were, if you should really be doing a victory lap here because – um, this game was basically handed to this Eagles team by Steve Sarkeesian. He put it on a silver plate. He handed it to you. He asked you what your favorite meal was. He prepared it for you. And then he gave it to you in abundance on a silver platter. I have never seen a worse called game. And you've been calling this about Sarkeesian all year long. He had a stretch where it looked like he had finally figured it out to where he finally had gotten kind of in a groove and a rhythm using his players to capacity. And then he choked. I mean, let's just, there's no other way to say, I mean, this guy got into a big position and he absolutely choked play call after play call after play call. That was questionable. That was questionable. That was questionable. And then when you had a goal to go situation for your, with your season at hand, you run on second down an underhand shovel pass into the teeth of the defense and think that that is the right play call to be, to be made. Then on fourth in season, not only do you line a fullback out wide, so basically you know for sure this guy is not getting the ball. It is a fullback lined up out wide. You can basically not cover this guy, but you roll your unathletic quarterback to the right, cut off half of the field, and make it to where he has a very tiny window to throw to to try to make your fourth in season play. I have seen 
So, and we'll talk, you know, listen, there was an abundance throughout the rest of the week and we'll talk about them as well. But when you watched this Joe live, you couldn't help but sit there and go, this guy blew this for this team. And that, you know, it's not a guarantee that they're going to score in the goal to go situation there. It's, it's a touchdowns never guaranteed. I can tell you that he decreased their chances significantly by the choices he made in those sequences. A mediocre to below average offensive coordinator performed in a mediocre to below average fashion. And as a result, the Falcons are going home and the Eagles are advancing. That's what we're faced with here. I don't know what it is about some of these spots because Sarkeesian isn't the only guy who choked with some of his play calling this weekend. I'm almost thinking that once you get to the playoffs, once you get to some of these really high leverage situations, these play callers are thinking like four steps down the line. They're thinking to themselves, all right, uh, Philadelphia's defense is going to know we're going to come out and throw it to Julio Jones. So as a result, I need to dial something up going the other way. No, just go with your bread and butter. And if they're good enough to stop your best move, then kudos to them. Give them a round of applause and say you right. beat us. Hopefully we see you next year. Same thing in Pittsburgh, which we're going to get to, I'm sure, in a little bit. Yeah. Toss sweep to Le'Veon yeah. Bell on fourth and one. The quarterback is 6'5", 240, and in 19 previous situations where he snuck it on fourth and a foot, he converted 18 of those 19 yeah. times. It, Why are you toss sweeping against the fastest defense in the yeah, league? It just it's it's so insane. Whenever I mean the the announcers were even screaming, they were like there's a fullback lined up out wide on fourth and season, like on a, on a fourth and season situation. And then to roll and cut off half of the field with your guy that listen, running with Matt Ryan is not an option. It's a, never an option. So him rolling, no one's going to leave their guy to go after Matt Ryan because him running, That's not the what you call an RPO. Yeah. Like he is never <laughs> running the ball in that situation. So everyone stood there and they're like, Oh wow. He has a tiny window to try to throw this into to try and beat us here. It was absolutely pathetic, absolutely horrible. A lot of people were praising Nick Foles in this situation. And listen, I, he did not give the game away. I will say that, but by no stretch of the imagination was Nick Foles anything that made you believe that this guy has what it takes to take this Eagles team any further than where they got past this Falcons team here. His best play of the entire day, Joe, was when he airmailed a receiver by 11 yards. It would have hit the safety directly in the chest. He jumped for whatever reason, paylayed it back 15 yards, and, and and had Torrey Smith run underneath it for a what turned out to be a very key play for them to get some points before the before the end of the half. I mean, it was just a it was a it was a mediocre pedestrian performance. But I guess here's at the end of the day, though, for a guy that was thrown into a very difficult situation. At the end of the season, uh, you know, Nick Foles, I'll, I, I can say this. He didn't give the game away. He didn't give no, the game. away. Yeah, exactly. It's a similar situation with Bortles in Pittsburgh. He played great, but don't lose the game. That was the Buffalo mandate when they played the Bills. Don't lose the game. We're good enough defensively. We're good enough in the running game that we can beat the Bills in the wild card round if you don't screw it up. So don't screw it up. And Bortles was able to go out there rushed for more yards than he threw for, and everyone made their jokes, but it was manageable. It didn't need to be pretty. It just needed to be effective. And then you combine that with a good game the following week, and now suddenly the Jaguars in the AFC Championship game. Same yeah. thing with Nick Foles. Go out there, try to hit some receivers, take what the defense gives you. We'll try to run the ball and play a little D, and hopefully, if you don't make enough mistakes, we can win this game. And that's exactly what Foles did. You got to think there'll be some changes on the Atlanta side of things after this. I mean, the offense was was slumping all year long, and for the talent that they have on that side of the ball, 
Uh, it's just pretty much unacceptable. So you have to think that there's going to be some fallout from this type of loss, only scoring 10 points uh, with that type of offense. Now, well, think about the fact that Sarkeesian's being rumored as the offensive coordinator replacement in Seattle for Daryl Bevel. And this comes on the heels of Seattle hiring Ken Norton away from the Niners to run the defense. These are horrible, horrible decisions by oh, yeah. Carroll. Ken Norton was terrible with the Oakland Raiders. There's a reason his next job after being a defensive coordinator was a linebacker coach. He was taking a step backwards. Seattle steps in to give him the DC job, and now everyone's talking about Sarkeesian to Seattle. That's really going to help Russell Wilson. That'll solve yeah. everything, much like they took the MVP of the league in Matt Ryan and reduced him to a slightly above-average quarterback this season. The Titans headed up to New England. This was no shocker. If you guys watch any of the other programming we do, this was my best bet of the week. I had no qualms laying the points here, 13 and a half. They've gotten up to 14, even 14 and a half for a blip uh, right before kickoff. Everybody was all over the Patriots, and rightfully so in this one. They went out, beat the hell out of the Titans here. Uh, you look at Tom Brady here, threw 53 times in this game, Joe. Uh, completed 35 of those for 337 yards. You know, and, and this is what we talk about with this Patriots team time and time again. If it's not one guy, it's another. You look around and you're like, oh, okay, well, if he threw for 337, boy, Brandon Cooks and Gronk must have just had a huge, huge game. No, Danny Amendola, 11 catches for 112 yards in this game is 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 just, you just keep taking your hat off to this Patriots team. We talked last week about whether we thought at all any of that ESPN story was going to affect them. We were of the same mindset that absolutely not. This is one of those situations where you have powerful guys in powerful positions. And of course, they're going to have egos. Of course, they're going to butt heads. It's just like a marriage. I mean, you know, you, you butt heads with your wife. You love your wife, but you still argue and you bitch and you moan at each other. And probably a lot of that goes on whenever you're with somebody for 17, 18 years. So one of these things that I guess the biggest takeaway from here, because we don't really need to analyze this game much, Joe, is that the Titans had given Mike Malarkey the quote-unquote vote of confidence before this game. Supposedly, we're even talking about an extension for him. And then, of course, as we, well, as I suspect, suspected, and I'm sure you did as well, uh, a bad loss here. He gets the boot. The Titans' job is now open and looks to be ripe for the picking for Josh McDaniels in this situation. Um, if you're Josh McDaniels, is this the job you want? It depends on how he feels about Marcus Mariota. If you love Marcus Mariota, then yeah, take this job. But if you're questionable or iffy on what Mariota can do as starting quarterback, you're going to have better options. Guys like Matt Patricia and Josh McDaniels, they don't need to rush into anything. Whatever they say yes to is clearly a situation that they feel is like tailor-made for them to step in and have some success early on. The Amendola thing, Honestly, I think there's like I have a little conspiracy theory here where New England's so good. They went into that, that game against Tennessee and they wanted Amendola to have a big game just to throw a wrinkle into Jacksonville or Pittsburgh's plans. Like just to be like, hey, here's another thing we can do. Good luck game planning for us this week. Like, let's get Amendola on tape as a superstar. As for Malarkey, credit the Tennessee Titans for not being prisoners to the political spectrum. And what I mean by that Agreed. is so often these teams, you might see this in Minnesota with Case Keenum, and you're probably going to see it in Jacksonville with Blake Bortles. Something happens with a quarterback or a coach, and it's like, you know he's not the guy, but you can't bring yourself to make the drastic move of parting ways with him. Joe Flacco won that Super Bowl for the Ravens back in what? February of 2013. It was one of the greatest postseason runs of all time. The Ravens knew he wasn't the best player in the NFL. 
That's why they didn't want to give him the money at the beginning of the season. But because he had just won that Super Bowl, they made him the highest paid player in the league. And since then, that has been a disastrous contract that has haunted that organization and hindered them from making quality moves and getting back to the Super Bowl. All because they made that deal. Now, they couldn't have been in a situation where they say, eh, we're not going to re-sign him because politically they would have been killed for it. But that's the problem Jacksonville and Minnesota are going to face with their quarterbacks this offseason. And that's what Tennessee could have faced because of that win at Kansas City. So give them credit for not being prisoners of the moment and saying, look, even though we got to this point, the guy's still not good enough. That's what the Chargers did with Marty Schottenheimer after they went 14-2 and that season. And people killed them. But the next year, North Turner came in and got that team to the AFC Championship game. Yeah, you look at this and, I mean, it, you talk about kind of trolling and, and doing different things. How about... Uh, giving Brandon Bolden a touchdown. You know, I mean, like Brandon Bolden came in, a guy that was on special teams the entire year long. He comes in, gets as many carries in the game as James White does and, and gets a touchdown. I mean, like this New England team basically just did whatever they wanted to against this Titans team here. I guess whenever you're Josh McDaniels, you look at this and you ask yourself about the foundation. You said you've got Marcus Mariota, so there's that. You have Derrick Henry, so you have a running back as well. And you have Corey Davis, who you spent a first-round pick on as a good, young, stud-wide receiver. Kind of had a bit of a breakout very, very late in the season here. Did end this game with five catches for 63 yards and a couple of touchdowns. And you got Delaney Walker as well. So on the offensive side of the ball, the basic building blocks are there if you're a guy like Josh McDaniels and you think, like you said, if you think Marcus Mariota is as good as people thought he was when he was coming out of college. Josh McDaniels, I have no doubt, is a friggin' is a genius. I think he will do very, very well his his this next go round as a head coach here. And I also believe that he'll know just about as well as anybody whether Marcus Mariota is the guy or not. And I think this is probably the most appealing job that's left out there. And so if he passes on this, I think this is going to be a pretty interesting indictment on Marcus Mariota and his future in the NFL because this, again, you, you name this, you've got a running back, you've got a tight end, you've got a star wide receiver, you got a pretty good offensive line. I mean, there, there are building blocks to this team for, for a head coach to feel pretty good about. But if he passes on this gig, you got to think that maybe it's because of Mariota. Do you like this job more than Indianapolis? Yeah, because there's a question mark because because of the giant question mark. I mean, you and I preached this from the summer when we were talking about this on this podcast. We said there's I bet you Andrew Luck doesn't play this year. And because the the timeline just kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back. And then what happened? He didn't friggin play. You know, I mean, then so we're like, yeah, this guy is not going to play this year. And I don't know, man, you're going overseas to try to get these experimental treatments and all these things like that. I, I don't know. I mean, it to me, too big of a question mark. From that, at least you know what you got going in with a guy like Mariota, right? I'm still fascinated by the whole Belichick angle. How much longer is he going to stay there? Would McDaniels want to be the guy that steps in for Belichick one day? Like, there's always been that concept that one of these coordinators would want to hang around and be the guy that replaces Bill. It's easy for the Patriots, right? They move from one to one of his assistants. And while it's not Bill Belichick, it's a guy that can kind of try to keep that legacy and those philosophies alive. So we're going to learn a lot about Marcus Mariota in the coming weeks here. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about Josh McDaniels. We'll see what happens with the Patriots. Fascinating stuff. Just fascinating stuff. Tennessee, it's funny. If you had said before the season started to us, Tennessee is going to make it to the divisional round, we would have nodded and agreed because we yeah. both like Tennessee, <laughs> but not this way. Like They wouldn't have looked like this getting to the divisional round and losing 
to the Patriots. Fascinating, but I think them in Jacksonville, part of the reason why the divisional round of the playoffs, the ratings at an alt at a low, a 10-year low, was we just saw this earlier in the week when those numbers came out. Jaguars headed to Pittsburgh to take on the Steelers. It was not what everybody thought. We thought that it might be a kind of a low-scoring, slobber-knocker type of a game. It ended up scoring 87 points in the game, 45-42 to 42 in favor of the Jaguars. You had Ben Roethlisberger, and, and, and listen, some of these yards came on a kind of a garbage thing at the end of the game, but you had Ben Roethlisberger throw 58 times for 469 yards and five touchdowns. You had Leonard Fournette go over 100 yards, actually 109 yards, score three touchdowns. And then you had Antonio Brown, who you know, was coming back off of this torn calf muscle and basically still has it. He was just kind of playing through injury basically showing us that this guy is legitimately one of the goats and like I understand he's small and I understand he's not physically imposing like a Randy Moss or you know different Terrell Owens or something like that but some of the catches this guy made some of the routes that he runs some of the things that he does makes your jaw hit the table when you see him do it seven catches 132 yards two touchdowns in this one but the big story at the end of the day Joe is that they lose and the big story also is the way that they lost in several, several questionable, if not downright, you know, fireable offense type calls in this game. Two different situations where they had fourth and one, one of which they threw a near side sweep, <laughs> sweep toss to Le'Veon Bell five yards behind the line of scrimmage when they only needed one. The second one, you know, it still hasn't come out. Big Ben said he didn't check out of any of any call there. The second one, they actually threw the ball. They didn't even run the ball on fourth and one against the Jaguars. Of course, neither one of them were good. Then the onside kick call at the end, even though they, you know, in theory had three timeouts because they had two plus the two minute warning. Um, lots of stuff to dissect here. Let's start on the Steelers side of the ball and let's just let's not let's focus on the outside of the game here. These coaching decisions, is this is this the end of the road definitely for Todd Haley after after what you could only consider w- were these calls coming from him? I mean, he might be the fall guy here, but it's got to the conversation has to start with Mike Tomlin. And Mike Tomlin's won double digit regular season games in each of the last four years. The Steelers aren't going to part with him. They're going to sit there and they're going to stick with that mantra of patience and that Tomlin's their guy and all this. But I got to ask you, I mean, what 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 happened here? Tomlin didn't have his team prepared to play. I mean, in every phase of the game, they were outplayed. This team was not motivated to play. They were running their mouths about the Patriots and the buildup. They were completely overlooking Jacksonville. I mean, forget about Tomlin out-scheming Doug Marone or having any wrinkles in there or having his team more more prepared to play. He didn't even have them focused on the game at hand. Like, once again, Mike Tomlin had two weeks to get ready for a game, and his team looked awful. How many coaches in the NFL could be given the best receiver in the league, the best running back in the league, and a Hall of Fame quarterback, and they win no playoff games? Yeah. Like, what's what's happening here? Haley's play calling was atrocious, but Tomlin's decision-making in terms of why are you going on sides? Forget about how atrocious the onside kick was. Kick it. Do you think Jacksonville was going to let Bortles put it in the air there? No. No, no way. Zero, zero it was a it was literally a 0.4% chance. There was I'll give it a half a percent maybe chance that they are ever deep in their own territory letting Blake Bortles throw the ball in that situation, especially considering Leonard Fournette was having a pretty good game, was able to run the they were going to run the ball three times, punt it away, and if they lost on that final drive, then they were going to lose on the final drive. That's just all there was to it. 
but he chose to go onside despite the fact having three effective timeouts with, if you include the, the two minute warning there. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier about the Titans and Malarkey is kind of the situation that I feel here about the Steelers and, and Mike Tomlin. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say that I'm crazy whenever you say that, you know, a guy that has had the type of success that he's had should maybe be looked at as to whether he's the guy or not. But when you look time after time, after time, after time, the level, the, the distance, and, and you know, you talk about this on this podcast a lot as well, but the distance, the distance between Bill Belichick and, and Mike Tomlin, not, we're talking about talent on the team. We're talking about just coaching ability. It's a Canyon. It's not even like, it's not, it's not even a tiny little, it's a Canyon between these two guys. And that is not going to change. There's Mike Tomlin's not going to all the all all of a sudden become this this absolutely brilliant football mind. It's not going to happen. So you can be fine with going in and losing these type of games or losing to to Belichick every single year. You can be fine with that, or you can move on because Joe, you sit there and you watch this, and yeah, Todd Haley might have called those fourth and one plays, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with the head coach. If you hear through your headset that you're going to run a toss sweep on fourth and one, you override that. You, you, you're like, no, 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 we are not. We're not doing that. And then the second go round to hear a, a pass play call come in your headset that we're going to on fourth and one, we're going to run a pass play. You go, the fuck we are and like, no, we're not. We're not running a pass play on fourth and one. We have a six foot five, 270 pound quarterback, have him fall forward. He can literally fall forward and we can get the foot and a half that we need to get Just the first let, down. Let Sir Isaac Newton get you the first down. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. you, you don't need to make this complicated. Two of the big issues right here are that number one, Tomlin's a defensive minded has head coach whose defense just made Blake Bortles look like a $25 million a year quarterback. That is a, is a major concern. Like if you're a defensive minded guy and Bortles just did that to your defense after you had two weeks to get ready for him, after you saw him early in the season, you playing at home, that's a big concern. Number two, I love the balls on Ben Roethlisberger to throw Todd Haley under the bus after the game. Roethlisberger, here's the difference between guys like Brady and Peyton Manning and you. This is the difference. Manning and Brady in that fourth and one situation early in the game understand the situation. They take it upon themselves to hustle up to the line of scrimmage. They snap the ball before the defense gets prepared to line up and stop them. And they fall forward and get the first down. They take it into their own hands and they make a play because they're Hall of Fame guys with Hall of Fame awareness. You, despite all these years in the league, need to wait for Todd Haley to tell you what to do. You're unaware, despite all that offense around you, that you should run up to the line of scrimmage. Worst case scenario, defense calls a timeout. You force them to burn one of their assets. That's still a win right there. You just won that situation in the chess match. That's not going to be the type of thing gives you a win in the game, but it gives you a leg up. It keeps them off balance. But instead, you walk up to the line and you wait for Haley to tell you toss sweep and you don't audible out of it. You're just as culpable. You're not a second-year quarterback. You're Ben Roethlisberger, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So to throw Todd Haley under the bus under the game, dude, that's on you. Manning and Brady and Breeze and Rodgers, they don't need Todd Haley to tell them what to do in that situation. They'll take it upon themselves to make the right decision, and then they'll execute it. You, on the other hand, wait for Haley. You do what he says, and then you blame him after the game. It's Bush League, but that's it'll, what Roethlisberger's been his whole career. It'll be very interesting for me. I know there are a lot of people out there who say he's definitely going to play out his contract, and he's definitely not going to look elsewhere, but 
you know, at times throughout this season, he has looked lackadaisical. He's looked like he didn't care all that much. There are times, uh, obviously, after the first Jaguars game where he said, maybe I've lost it, you know, basically uh, trying to question and, and downplay whether it was a bad loss or whether it was just he doesn't have it anymore, all these things. I think it'll be interesting to see how this offseason plays off, uh, plays out with, with Ben Roethlisberger. I I'm going to tell a- you right now what's going to happen. Mark this down right now. The Steelers are going to draft Wyoming quarterback Josh Allen. That's what's going to happen. And then everyone's going to go, and they'll probably have to trade up to do it. So out of nowhere, you'll see this trade-up situation, and you'll see the Steelers moving up. It's like, what are the Steelers doing? The Steelers don't normally do stuff like this. What are they up to? They'll trade Josh, They'll take Josh Allen, and the place will go nuts. And then you'll have nothing but hot takes about Ben Roethlisberger's future. And then Roethlisberger will have some shitty, pissy reaction to it. And then he'll have to come out later and say he was hacked on Twitter or whatever the situation. But that's that's what's going to happen here. I see the Steelers drafting his replacement and having them sit a year behind Roethlisberger to learn. And Roethlisberger's not going to want to deal with it. And he's not going to help the guy. It's going to be the same thing as Brett Favre and Tom Brady. But what do you think is going to happen? The Steelers are just going to sit around and wait. For someone to fall into their lap? No, they see the writing on the wall. Wattlesberger's best days are far, far behind him. And the nightcap, the Saints taking on the Vikings up in Minnesota. One of the craziest endings to a football game that you will ever see in your entire life. The Saints down 17-0 at halftime. Come back, rally in the second half, are up with 10 seconds left. And of course, whatever they're calling it, the pass, the miracle, digs, this, that, and the other. Um, Stefan Diggs jumps up, makes a catch, gets completely whiffed on, uh, by the safety. I mean, it was like the most pathetic attempt at a, at a tackle basically I've ever seen in my entire life. And he turns around, runs the end zone and they win in regulation. Joe, when you were watching this game, what was your reaction at first? Was it just one of those, like, you didn't even know what to say. It was just like complete and utter shock. You mean you're just talking about the final play? Yeah, just the final yeah. play. Yeah. So, okay. So early in the day, uh, we got the in-laws in town and we watched some of the Steeler game and then we took the kid to the park and I was just monitoring the Steeler game on the phone because once Jacksonville got up that big, that's a dangerous team when they play with a lead yeah. and they had a big lead in that game. So you start to realize this is probably over. I can come back later and watch this at night. I can watch the replay, catch what I missed, and then I'll be able to talk about it later in the week. So we're back for this game, obviously, because this is the one I wanted to watch. 17-0. It seems like it's boring. It gets late. I was just kind of walking around on the last play. I figured it was over. So I'm not kind of glued to the TV. I was pouring a glass of wine. I'm off to the side. And I see Diggs go up and catch the ball. And then he keeps his balance. That's the one thing that stands out for me. Me going, oh, my God, he kept his balance. And as he turns, no one's there. And I just remember yelling, he's going to go. And you look up and you're like, wait a minute. This is a final play of the game. This is it. They just had a walk-off touchdown. And what I loved about what I loved about the situation was I wasn't immediately thinking about hot takes and mistakes and anything like that. It was just one of those moments where it was, wow, we yeah. just watched the Music City Miracle. We just watched the Immaculate Reception. We just saw a miracle play take place. And for a few moments there, I just kind of looked at the TV and thought, shit, I'm an Eagles fan. I would have rather had the Saints. <laughs> we'll circle we'll we'll circle back around to um just the entire game in general but like keeping with that last play here um you know one of the things that a lot of people aren't talking about and I actually haven't heard uh, many people bring this up at all 
is, and I said this immediately as we were, you know, I was actually sitting there watching with Dave, who is a, you know, a Viking fan. So that was, that was awesome. Uh, and if you can't tell my sarcasm in that, that was, well, great. his Seahawks were out and, yeah, and, and, and his, and his Texans and his whatever, you know, and all the, yeah, all the teams <laughs> that he loves his Raiders. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm sitting here watching this. The first thing I said was, I mean, that's great and all, but dig should have gone out of bounds. Like he didn't know there was nobody behind him. Like it, that, like the, the, the play should have been, if you catch the ball, you have to immediately get out of bounds so we can kick a field goal and, yeah. and try to win the game. And instead he catches the ball and takes off right. Like he had no idea there was no one behind him. He had his back to, to the rest of the field. So I was sitting here going like, this guy's going to become the hero on a play that he very well could have been the goat because had he, had he done what he did and there was somebody behind him, the first thing everybody's going to be screaming is, why the hell didn't he go out of bounds? Why didn't he fall? He was right there. He could have just fallen out of bounds. Why didn't he fall out of bounds? And instead, everyone's cr- praising this guy as like the second coming of Christ here. And it's like this guy made a horrible decision to turn around and run run the ball down the field. But, you know, again, it's it, hindsight's twenty twenty always. But I, that was one of the first thing that came to mind. I was like, this guy should have fallen out of bounds. Like, what, what the hell was he doing? Wins will cover up a lot of mistakes like people aren't going to be willing to go back and dig through the mistakes you made when you end up winning a game of this magnitude take for example the philadelphia game late when the eagles have the ball doug peterson is out there running the clock all the way down on the six yard line to try to figure out if he's going to go for it on fourth and two or if he's going to kick and with the clock low they're like all right we're going to burn a timeout here all right fine so you're going to cut dial up a play then he sends out the field goal unit like what the are you doing let that that timeout is worth more than the five yards you're not moving from 47 to 52 in terms of field goal range yeah. you're moving from like 33 to 38 it doesn't yeah. matter Elliot it's negligible but yet they wasted the timeout but because the Eagles won no one wanted to talk about Doug Peterson once again mismanaging a game late and possibly costing himself similar situation here Minnesota wins that game you don't talk about Diggs's decision. You don't talk about the fact that if Willie Sneed can complete a pass that he's probably practiced 50 <laughs> times all year, that they end up burning your ass even earlier in that game. I mean, a lot of stuff happened there that covers up Minnesota bombing out in the second half. Minnesota yeah. had that game. It never should have gotten to that point. Zimmer and the Vikings and Case Keenum all get to celebrate. But I'll tell you what, man, Keenum looked real shaky there late in that game. Yeah, this is this was certainly not his, you know, greatest greatest crowning achievement as far as a game here. I mean, listen, a win is a win, and we talk about that all the time. That, you know, you you can't really knock these people when they win. But there were a couple of different passes that Case Keenum threw up that showed that that he was not ready for that moment. There were certain different times where you could see um, that the Case Keenum. This was the moment. It seemed like had gotten too big for him. And then Drew Brees just did what Drew Brees does, like. The pressure was on. Drew Brees went out. Did you think at any point with a little over a minute to go when he got the ball back that he wouldn't lead them down to field to a score? Right? I was like, fuck, man, this is why you have Drew Brees. Like, there's no way live betting I'm taking the Vikings in this spot. <laughs> like, Brees, even when it was fourth and ten, I was like, yeah. Brees will figure out a way. That's what he does. This is this is why the quarterback position is the pinnacle of sports. Because guys who are like Drew Brees who can do this sort of thing, they're the ones you pay all the money to. That's what it comes down to. The ability to operate under extraordinarily 
pressure-filled situations and still perform at the highest possible level given the situation. You look at these defenses that these teams run in these like late-game situations, and it really makes you wonder. Uh, they they did a great job, and you know, listen, I it, people like to bitch and moan about you know the announcers and different things like that, or like. Could you imagine? Like we, I think we take for granted like what we get compared to what we even had like ten years ago. I mean, like the the, the technology, everything's going on. They did a great job of blowing out to the entire. You could see the entire field, and they're like, "This is this awkward uh, formation the Saints' defense is lined up in right here." And you know, one of the other things that came to mind, Joe, and I, I, you know, I'd like to get your opinion on this as well is. You know, they put these guys, and I almost feel like they're doing these defenders a disservice because they put them in these situations where they're in these really wacky-ass, awkward formations that you have to think, throughout the course of a season, maybe this presents itself one or two times, right? Like, So you're never, ever in these formations. You never run these. You're never going to practice them at length in practice because, again, they happen so infrequently. They're never situations that are like, oh, yeah, we're going to run this type of defense for several plays throughout a game. Like, it's all, It has to be a very specific circumstance where you are up in a game late with very little time on the clock and you're trying to prevent people from getting out of bounds. So, like, like it has to have five different scenarios for you to ever be in these type of things. So, yeah, the guy goes up. He tries to hit him. Why he tries to hit him? I have no idea. He totally whiffs on the tackle and that. But like with that, you know, these guys are he's used to being in a situation where, you know, eight times out of 10, there's someone who's got his back. There's someone going to be around. There's something, whatever, like a guy running a 61 yarder like that is it's just not one of the scenarios that normally plays out. So it, it almost makes me wonder why these teams don't just put them in a normal defense with. 10 yards of cushion as opposed to lining them up in these awkward things where they're, they're not used to how they're, they're lined up. They're not used to how they actually work. It, it just seems like they're doing these guys. A dis- and we see time and time again, right? We see these late quarter, late, late last second comebacks where quarterbacks just dissect them down the field because they're giving them these wide open soft zones. And to me, it just seems so friggin' ridiculous. This is the defensive version of running a toss sweep on fourth and one in the Pittsburgh game. And on splitting the fullback out wide in the Atlanta game rather than throwing it to Julio Jones. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. What's worked for you all year? One of the problems with the Saints was going into that final play, they were yelling and screaming on the sideline about not committing pass interference. Don't commit pass interference. So Marcus Williams, the free safety, as he comes running up, isn't sure whether or not he's going to get flagged because he's there so early, and he kind of keeps his arms down and dives to the side, and lo and behold, he makes no contact whatsoever, and Diggs goes 61 yards for a touchdown. Why were you saying that to him before? Obviously, because you had already committed multiple penalties in that game. Cauley got drilled. They went back-to-back early, and they were afraid the refs were going to job him. You never say something like that to your free safety. The only instruction to the free safety before a play like that is don't let anyone get behind you that's your only rule in that spot don't let anyone get behind you i don't care about anything else at the moment don't let anyone get behind you raheem moore in the denver baltimore game five years ago almost to the day letting jacoby jones get behind him for a 70 yard touchdown what are you doing the definition of your job is free safety you are literally the safety valve the last line of defense nobody gets behind you and that's what happens to williams here he was thinking about 40 different things when in reality his coaching staff should have said marcus don't let anyone get behind you in this yeah. spot yeah 
literally play. You can literally just jockey with the guy if you want to. The rest of the team will come and they will help you out. You'll get help. Yeah, you'll get help. You could literally sit there and just jockey with the guy if you wanted to. Pretty crazy stuff. So one of the things coming out of this game is the fact that this is that was the last game on Drew Brees' contract with the Saints with with New Orleans. He is a free agent. Um, I guess the the thing the Saints have to decide here, Joe. You've got a team that had an amazing draft. They have Kamara has become a star. Michael Thomas has become a star. You've got tons of talent on the defense. You got a pretty good offensive line when they're all healthy. Um, do you pay a 39 year old quarterback three years? And what I can only assume it's drew Brees. So I can, what I can only assume is probably going to approach 30 million a year. So are you going to pay drew Brees three years, $90 million at 40 years old is, is what the saints are going to have to make the decision because that's going to severely limit what else you can do to try to improve this squad. And so I understand drew Brees is drew Brees. I understand that they love Drew Brees. I understand Drew Brees loves New Orleans. I understand Drew Brees could probably run for governor of Louisiana and win because that is how popular he is there. But at the same time, you as a franchise, as a professional sports organization, need to always be thinking in the best interest of the professional sports organization. Is giving a 40-year-old quarterback three years and $30 million per best for your organization right now why do you why do you keep throwing those numbers out there is that what he wants is that what he said well I, i mean i'm going off of the fact that you have quarterbacks of much less much much lesser status than drew Brees that have gotten 25 plus million a year right so the the thinking being that drew Brees and his agent would probably go okay this guy's making 25 this is drew friggin Brees. he's gonna make 30 why do you keep throwing three years out there, though? Why wouldn't he just sign for, say, one? See, I, I think that because of the credibility he's built up in that town and with that team, they love him so much. I would imagine that they'll say, look, rather than get locked down into anything, like I could see them, the only reason they would do something long-term is so that they could prorate some of the money on the salary cap and maybe buy themselves some leeway. But outside of that, I really don't see the team and the player doing anything you know, real, not contractually, anything real that's more than a one year at a time sort of scenario. And I think Drew understands that. I don't think he wants to hamstring the team. And I don't think the team wants to put him in a situation where he feels like he has to go anywhere else or retire. I think they all want to ride this out together to the last possible moment when they all realize uh, we're not New England. We don't need to force out Garoppolo and get into a fight about this. We've had a great run. The city loves us. Let's do what we need to do. So the only reason I could see this being a long-term deal is just so you can prorate the cash and work the cap. But I I really only see the Saints and Drew Brees working on like a pay-as-you-go basis from here on out. I would think this seems like a perfect scenario here with how young this team is and kind of on the up and come. Uh, You know, Saints weren't supposed to obviously be this good this year. They they were supposed to be kind of a year away as well. Um, I I kind of look at this as a scenario, Joe, that we talk about with some of these other teams. This seems like a great time for the Saints to third round, second round, third round, something like that. Find a quarterback, find a guy that they like, that they know is going to be still there. You know, I, you're not going to get one of the upper tier guys, but one of those middle of the range type guys that you think could grow into something that you believe in and and spend a second round or a third rounder on the guy and have him sit behind Drew for a couple years and then him just take over the reins whenever Drew's decides to walk off into the sunset, which I imagine will probably be, I don't know. I mean, we see, I I say this all the time, but we see athletes hang on whenever we think that they should definitely not hang on. But Drew Brees seems like the type of guy to me that's not going to go out there and 
and and play at a level to where people are going to be shaking their head and say, man, he friggin' held on too long. Here's what Breeze, here's what's going to be interesting. It's not whether or not they're going to pay him 30 million. It's whether or not Breeze is going to do what Brady does and take like 14 million. Why not? I mean, yeah. you just, he turned 39 on Monday. That must've been a somewhat miserable birthday considering what had happened the day before. If you feel like you should have won that game, you're probably thinking, holy shit, if we had won, we would have gotten to go to Philly. We would have been favorites. We probably beat the Eagles. And then we have a chance to win this entire thing in Minnesota against the Patriots, right? I'll get another Super Bowl and I can ride off. He's got to feel robbed of that opportunity. But he's also got to be smart enough to look around and say, Ingram and Kamara, Michael Thomas, how good this defense looks. Hmm, we can get back if I can play well. But why would I want to hamstring the team by taking 30 million a year? Why don't I do what Brady does, take 14, and now suddenly there's 10 to 15 million dollars available at the quarterback position that no one would have thought because he took less money? This is going to be the real test for Drew Brees. Whether or not he wants to win, let's see if he takes less money. Could you imagine this team with an actual true number two wide receiver? Their number two guy is friggin' Ted Ginn. Every time you put it in the air, it's a coin flip whether he's going to catch the ball or not. You, right. you, have, no, you have no idea whether he's like a, a, a true number two option in this offense, and it could be absolutely scary next year. So it'll be pretty, pretty interesting when it's all said and done. All right, Joe. So here we have it. We have the Jaguars and Patriots. We have the Eagles and we have the Vikings. Let's start with the AFC game here. The Patriots going to host the Jaguars. How do we see this? How do we see this playing out? And what do you, what is the, what is the path to victory? And, you know, we'll talk about this on our sports betting show that we do as well. What is the path to victory for both of these teams? I, I I have a feeling the Patriots, this is what I'm getting caught up with. Cause what, what do I want to put more credence behind the Patriots taking the Kyle Shanahan 49er blueprint and tearing apart the Jacksonville defense or Tom Coughlin finding a way to, much like he did twice with the Giants in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, finding a way to limit Brady and stifle New England and shock the world this weekend. Because Coughlin knows how to beat this team. And he's got a great defense at his disposal. And he's got a great running game at his disposal. And that is eerily similar to what he had with the Giants twice when he met the Patriots in the Super Bowl. But I can't imagine a scenario in which New England just has that Kyle Shanahan 49er tape sitting out there and they don't find a way to just spend an entire week studying how the Niners in that below average offense outside of Garoppolo found a way to shred these guys for almost 400 yards and 44 points on a Sunday. I think I think. New England's just dissecting that left and right, and they're going to find a way to make this defense look worse than it has at any point this season, save for maybe last week in the second half when they were just giving up drive after drive. What's going to be very interesting to me is how Jacksonville decides to go about the coverage situation because one of the things we've seen with New England is, and look, they they, they will certainly, by no stretch of the imagination, am I saying that they can be shut down because I don't think they can, but Grok is a key, is kind of a cog to making the wheel work, right? Like you're, you're always worried about Gronk, and then when people are worried about Gronk, then all these other things open up, and that's when they can really start using a guy like a Danny Amendola, Deion Lewis looking like a freaking all-star out there right now, all these different things that are going on. Do you take Jalen Ramsey, and do you shadow Gronk with Jalen Ramsey and basically take Gronk out of play and say, okay, now you got to beat us with Brandon Cooks and Chris Hogan 
and Danny Amendola and things like that. Like, do you put it outside of Gronk's hands? Because one of the things we've seen time and time again, we've seen Gronk just take over games. We've seen Gronk take over drives. We've seen him be the guy whenever they really, really need the big play. You take Jalen Ramsey, who's a big physical corner, a definite, definitely a guy that could, you know, cover Gronk in basically any cert in any situation. Is that a strategy you think that is one on the table? And do you think that's something they should certainly be looking at? Well, that'd be taking a page out of Belichick's playbook and throwing it right back in his face, essentially finding a way to make your opponent play left-handed. Belichick is a master at identifying the other team's strongest point and limiting it. We're going to take away Antonio Brown, for example. What are you going to do? We're going to take away Le'Veon Bell. We're going to take away Demarius Thomas or whoever it may have been in the past. What are you going to do about it? In this situation, if you're Jacksonville, you look at all the damage Gronk has caused over the seasons and you say to yourself, all right, if we put Jalen Ramsey on Rob Gronkowski and we limit Gronk, we can limit him in this game to the point where he will not be the difference. Are we good enough defensively elsewhere to prevent the Patriots from crushing us? I think the answer is there. There has got to be yes. You've got a fast football team. I mean, it's it's really going to be scheme that beats you. The Patriots are not going to beat you because they're better athletes or because they're more talented offensive players. It's going to be scheme. So I would be thinking we've got Bortles. We're almost 10-point underdogs here. Let's put Ramsey on Gronk. Let's try to take him out of the game and see what else they've got for us. Listen, A.J. Bouye was all up in Antonio Brown's jock. It's just It's just Antonio Brown's that good. I mean, like it was one of those things where the catches he were he was making, ninety nine point five percent of the receivers in this league are not making those catches. And I can tell you right now, Brandon Cooks sure as hell ain't making those catches. Like that is not happening with Brandon Cooks. And then you look at, and then you look like Big Ben. Like, listen, it, it, for all his faults, he can still throw the deep ball. I mean, he can chuck it up, like you know, and still get it out there. Is Brady that guy that's going to be able to? Listen, I. I I think it's the right strategy, and you know, it seems like every week we have something to pick on Matt Peralta about our buddy that that does national radio for SB Nation Radio. But I had to like kind of slap his hand earlier today on Twitter because he's sitting there trying to say he's like, oh, if you put Ramsey on Gronk, he's gonna be he's gonna be having to cover him over the middle of the field in a place he's like uncomfortable and not used to covering people, and like that, that's gonna create mismatches and stuff. And then you go and you look and you see that Jalen Ramsey shadowed. Six different times this year, two of the guys he shadowed, one of which was uh, one of one of the which one of which was T.Y. Hilton, one of which was Larry Fitzgerald run a bulk of their routes, you know, a ton of their routes out of the slot like this guy's not if you think that this guy's not going to be able to cover Gronkowski because he runs over the middle, you've lost your friggin' mind like this is one of the uh, premier cover corners in the game today and one of the very few that can match up physically with a guy like Gronk. I mean. I think this is the the right strategy. I think it's a strategy they should take. And I think it's a strategy that, that might could lead to at least Jacksonville keeping this game close. As we sit right now, we're looking at a 46.5 point total. We're looking at about a 9, 9.5, 8.5 in some places spread right here. Look, at the end of the day, if Jacksonville can even somewhat mimic what they did against Pittsburgh with their success on the ground, and I, I'm sure a lot of that will have to do with the health of of Leonard Fournette, which we didn't even mention him. We were going through Joe. He looked like a he looked like a, a different guy out there this weekend. He did, he did, and it's funny to sit here and it's not funny, but it's interesting to sit here and break down the Jaguar defense versus the Patriot offense when this is all going to come down to Blake Bortles. 
any chance the Jaguars have of winning this game is going to reside on Bortles' shoulders because Belichick is going to execute the plan we've been talking about for weeks here. Stack the defensive front against Fournette. Make Bortles beat you. That's it. Pittsburgh couldn't do that. For some reason, Mike Tomlin, with two weeks to prepare, didn't think to himself, let's put five defenders on the line of scrimmage and let's keep an eye on Fournette. Let's stack that box and yeah. make it difficult. We'll play man on the outside. We'll make 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 Bortles beat us. They couldn't do it. And Fournette tore them apart in the first half of that game and even came back from injury and continued to play relatively well. If you're the Patriots, you're going to stack it up and you're going to make it very uncomfortable for Bortles. And he's going to need to beat you through the air often in this game. That's going to be the ultimate matchup. Can Blake Bortles do it? Well, if he wants to get paid 20 plus million dollars, <laughs> this is the game to do it. I am fascinated by the chess match because I can see this game going either end of the spectrum. I can see the Patriots absolutely rolling the Jaguars and I can see the Jaguars in this game at the final moment. By the time I bet this game on Sunday, I've got to figure out the answer to that question. I'm not sure which way it's going to go. Patriots are two and six against the spread in their last eight NFC or excuse me, AFC championship games, but it's going to be hard for me to get behind the idea of Bortles uh, out, out, performing bill belichick right like if it yeah. comes down to that i'm gonna feel like an asshole if i take the jags and watch him get blown out because the whole time it's gonna be oh yeah i um i probably should have seen that coming probably should have seen it coming and then on the nfc side we have minnesota and philadelphia so just to recap the four quarterbacks that are left in the nfl right now that are still going to be playing when we sit down to watch football on sunday blake bortles who had to beat out chad henney in the offseason we have Case Keenum, who was a solid number two backup, who probably would have been moved to number three on the pecking order when t when Teddy Bridgewater came back uh, off of off of injury. And that situation, we have Nick Foles, who literally hasn't had a good season since 2013, leading the Philadelphia Eagles. And then you have Tom Brady, who has seven million Super Bowls and 400 million wins and a uh, supermodel wife and all the things like that. So one of these things is not like the others. That's for sure. This um, is this is this is Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. Like, that's what this <laughs> is. You have all these scenarios where hard work and, and 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 foresight and studying and research and all that stuff comes into play to have success. But every scenario also involves a little bit of luck. Like, there's got to be a little bit of luck. Right guy, right place, right time. Tom Brady is in a scenario where he needs to bleed, beat Marcus Mariota, Blake Bortles, and either Case Keenum or Nick Foles, and he wins another Super Bowl. Like, Joe Montana had to beat Elway. He had to beat Marino. He had to get through Phil Simms. Like, there was a lot he had to do, and this guy's got to get past Mariota, Bortles, and either Keenum or Foles, the Jeff Fisher castoffs. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is going to be crazy. So we have Minnesota. They're going to head to Philadelphia. As we sit right now, we're looking at a 38-and-a-half point total, about a three-point spread on the fav in favor of of the Vikings in this one. Now, if you look at the way that the game played out in Philadelphia this past week, and you look at the way that Matt Ryan and them were able to, so I, that was one of the other things we didn't mention. The, the Falcons were able to move the ball up to a certain point. They punted from the 50 yard line five times. So they were able to get the ball to, the, to midfield or a little bit past midfield on several occasions and just couldn't absolutely just couldn't flip the switch. The question will be is, is Minnesota going to just basically fall into that pattern as well? Is Philadelphia going to give them 25, 30, 35 yards and then, and, and then stifle this offense? And, you know, listen, Minnesota has showed me this year 
that no matter how many times I doubt what they can do on the offensive side of the ball, they still throw a, a weird, tiny little wrinkle, a new little thing. Everybody thought Adam Thielen was going to have the huge game for Minnesota this past week, and it wasn't the case. They were able to get all of their running backs going. They were able to get digs going. They even had, you know, it's to me, it's going to be, it's all going to come down to can Minnesota, can Minnesota st- score 17 points. I think that's all they're going to need in this game. I don't think they give up more than 14 to Philadelphia. I like the under here. I like the under here as well. I I, I see this 20 to 14 in favor of Minnesota, uh, maybe 20 to 17. This is where it all comes back to bite the Eagles in the ass. D- Doug Peterson, he's done a nice job with this team. He's clearly a player's coach. Um, he's kept these guys focused. There are going to this underdog mentality thing that they're embracing. This is healthy. This is good. This is that motivating us against the world sort of thing that Belichick brings into play every single year. So Philadelphia, especially on defense is going to come out and give you a fight. But at some point in a game that is a razor thin margin for error, Peterson is going to have to make sure he doesn't mismanage the clock. He doesn't mismanage his timeouts. He doesn't mismanage his game situations. He's got to be able to put Nick Foles in the best possible situation. And it's one thing to do that against Atlanta, which has been tired and is playing outdoors again. It's another to get Minnesota's defense, which has traveled very well. Two things that travel well in the NFL, defense and offensive lines. Bad offensive lines do not travel. And I see Everson Griffin and Mike Zimmer, who calls the defense for Minnesota, taking advantage of Philadelphia's banged up offensive line in this situation. You know, Jason Peters has been out for weeks and people haven't been able to make the Eagles pay for this. Peterson is going to need to be on his game, and I just don't think he has it. I think this is going to be that ultimate learning experience. This is going to be the Eagles with the whole, all right, we made it work, but next year we're going to come back even stronger. Carson Witt's going to be back. We're going to win the NFC. And they'll have their little rallying cry. But outside of Minnesota totally botching this game behind Case Keenum, I don't see how the Eagles get him because I just don't think Nick Foles is going to be able to dig down deep like Blake Bortles did last week and find the game of all games. I just don't think he has the weapons. Torrey Smith is nowhere to be found on a regular basis. And all Sean Jeffrey isn't worth the money they gave him. He really isn't. Well, if you look at this too, so you've got Minnesota who has Xavier Rhodes. And if you watch the success that Drew Brees and Michael Thomas had against Xavier Rhodes, now he still made a ton of great plays in that game, but this was just the, the, the basically the magical right arm of Drew Brees and Michael Thomas, the most underrated, we talked about this last week, one of the most, if not the most underrated wide receivers in the entire NFL, Drew Brees was throwing Michael Thomas open. Because Xavier Rhodes was all up on him. I mean, Xavier Rhodes had amazing coverage. Michael Thomas made one, several, 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 several really good catches. And two, Drew Brees was just like, all right, I'm going to have to throw this in a spot where it's going to look like it's a bad pass, but I'm throwing the guy open here. Is Nick Foles going to be able to do that in this situation with, I can only assume they'll put, they'll put Xavier Rhodes on Alshon Jeffrey. I mean, no. So now it's, now it's, you got to win with Nelson Aguilar. I don't know, Joe, I'm kind of with you. I just think this is the, you know, the Cinderella kind of, this is where the, the you turn back into the pumpkin type thing here, you know? They, they they did what they needed to do. Philly justified the season by getting to this point. You had to win at least one playoff game. Don't be the team that loses the quarterback, falters down the stretch like the Raiders did last year, and then completely mail it in because you're so pathetic and heartbroken, you can't rally to at least put on a good performance. They came out and they put on a good performance. They got the win. The city's hyped up. They're going to host the NFC championship game. There's no shame in losing here because you're down Carson Wentz. The season turned out to be a success. Peterson, people will think he did an excellent job. 
Foles filled in admirably, and you at least got that one playoff win. If they had blown it against Atlanta, the season just becomes a mess. It's like, how did you not figure out a way to win one game against a slightly above average team? So I, I, it just feels, all the years of being a Philadelphia fan, this feels like the end of the line for them. If you had Carson Wentz, it's unbelievable. You'd be in the Super Bowl. You would be yeah. in the Super Bowl, and we wouldn't even be sweating this. It's just such a tough break for Eagle fans. It really is. It's unfortunate. It's, it's the truth. He brings in just a completely different element to the game whatsoever. Damn, man, we blasted through. We blasted through an hour right here talking about four games. But listen, there were just so many different elements to talk about with these games and so many different things that you know could be fallout from these games, different scenarios that could be happening here. Obviously, we'll be back next week to talk about how these games shape up. And then we will actually get into some hoops. If you guys haven't been you know, paying attention. We're actually getting into a whole bunch of other sports. Golf season just started back up, so they're playing. I uh, just played over in Hawaii, playing again this week in th- uh, three different courses uh, down in California. So there's a lot of things going on in the golf world. Tennis started. Australian Open just got going. So there's a whole bunch of other sports that will be uh, on the docket here for us. I know we've been very football heavy over the last yeah, several yeah, months. Come, but- to, come to us for all your Australian Open needs. I really can't wait to get into that podcast. Hey, hey, listen, I, this is all we have to say right here we won't have anyone to talk about because basically all the Americans lost in the first round already. Like it is like the, it is, it's a been a bloodbath as far as like American tennis goes whenever it comes to the Australian open. So we we'll, all we'll do is talk about basically did Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal <laughs> win like yet again, basically Sweet. When it all, yeah, when it all comes down to it, but uh, golf is going to be interesting. Uh, been talking to one of the sports books uh, here in town and Joe, it's just one of those things, and maybe we can even devote a little bit uh, of time to this next week as well. But uh, guess who's down to ten to one to win the Masters? Who? Tiger Woods. Why? Like, who are the assholes? That People bet him? can't not bet the guy. They can't just. They can't quit him. They can't quit him, dude. So stupid. I, it's look, ten to one for I him to even, even complete all four rounds of that tournament. I don't I even want to have. I don't want even even have the conversation about that stuff anymore. I just want to see that guy. Do the complete 180. Like, remember what we thought of Mike Tyson in the 80s and 90s? What do we think of Mike Tyson now? People like him. He's like this lovable character. He says funny things. He has a Vegas show. Like, that's Mike Tyson. That's what I want Tiger Woods to turn into. I want him to go from this really hardcore, unrelatable, like living on the edge sort of dude to just smile and laugh and try to play a little golf. And if you make a final group or you're in contention at a major one time in the next few years, it's going to be an awesome story. But just stop worrying so much about being that guy you used to be and just sit back and chill. You got a pretty good life. We basically need to, and and maybe we will produce this, do not steal this program idea out there, you sons of bitches. This is ours, like trademark, register tray, our little R with a circle on it. It's our art. We need to send a a road trip, just an RV with John Daly and Tiger Woods. And like, it's John Daly basically the whole time trying to get Tiger Woods to learn how to be cool and just chill out and be normal as a human being and stuff. It would be hilarious. It'd be a great friggin' show. We'll do eight episodes. We'll get picked up for a second season. It's going to be amazing. We just got to talk to uh, John Daly's in. So we just got to get Tiger on board. John Daly's in. Stop. He's in for sure. Daly's got availability. Yeah. Like he's in for sure. Like it would be like, Hey John, we'll pay for the the schedule. We'll we'll pay for the beer and the cigarettes. And that's all. And he'll be like, I'm in. Sounds good. I mean, I'll kick in for some of those beers. You guys don't need to go all the way. <laughs> uh, it'll be amazing, guys. I don't want to risk losing the project. <laughs> thanks for joining us here for episode number forty-two of the show, and enjoy the games this weekend. Listen, I know 
the Jacksonville New England game seems like it could be a blowout, but I think there might be a little bit more to that. There might be a couple of extra layers to that. Onion for Joe in the Bay Area for producer Robert here in Las Vegas. I am Matt Brown. We will see you next week for episode number 43. Kaboom. Nice. Uh, I don't like that. No, uh, just stick with boom. We'll just start over then. <laughs> we don't need a whole we don't need a whole improv situation where now every week you have some specific one liner you drop on us. <laughs> Let's just stick with boom. It works nicely. He needs the uh <laughs> Robert needs his catch his catchphrase. Yeah. Like like you just need to come in and like drop whatever your catchphrase like is. One day it's gonna be splash. And it's like no no no. No. Just no no boom no, no. Is Robert. Your thing. Robert, 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 you, you you can't say you can't say kapow like it's just not one of those things. Zowie. <laughs> <laughs>